The CBF Podcast Conversation is presented to you by Fuller Seminary. Fuller Seminary's MA in Theology and Ministry offers a practice-focused theological education. Learn from Fuller's seasoned scholar practitioners with online classes and apply what you're learning to your own context. Whatever your ministry goals, Fuller Seminary's MA in Theology and Ministry will help you take the next step in your vocation. For more information, visit fuller.edu backslash M-A-T-M degree. That's fuller.edu backslash M-A-T-M degree. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work in renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. This is Andy Hale. 2020 is off to a great start for the CBF podcast with guests like Father Thomas Reese, Soong Cheng Ra, and Casey Van Norman. We also have a lot of exciting episodes ahead, including interviews with Eugene Cho, Sarah Bessie, and our week in D.C. at Advocacy in Action. Don't forget that you can be a part of supporting the podcast while receiving some great benefits, such as joining an interview with an upcoming guest, books from authors interviewed, and a VIP experience at this summer's General Assembly. We want to thank William Johnson and Cindy Folendor for their monthly support of the podcast. Check out how you can support at cbf.net backslash podcast support. And now, on to our conversation. Well, our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Malcolm Foley. Malcolm is a fifth-year PhD candidate in Baylor's Department of Religion studying history of Christianity. Malcolm also serves as the Director of Discipleship at Mosaic Church of Waco. Malcolm, thank you for joining the conversation. I'm glad to be here. Now, before we get into your doctoral work, uh, let's get to know you a little better. Uh, tell us tell us about the man behind uh, the deep investigation and research. <laughs> so, um, so I grew up uh, grew up in Maryland. Um, grew up uh, at, I grew up in the church. Um, and when I when I went to undergrad, uh, there are, there are I'm, I'm I'm still trying to find this email, but I. I told the admissions folks when I was when I when I was applying for undergrad institutions that I wanted to do a degree a degree in religion and then um, and then do an MDiv and then do a PhD. Um, and it turns out that that's exactly what I ended up doing. <laughs> and um, uh, so so did my did my undergrad at WashU in St. Louis. Um, did work in religious studies and finance with a classics minor. Then did my MDiv at Yale, and then came to then came to Baylor for the PhD. So it's been it's been essentially all all school for my for my entire life. 
Um, but, um, but yeah, that's a, that's a little bit, that's a little bit, uh, that's a little bit of the introduction. Yeah. I, I mean, that's a pretty strong prediction of, of, uh, the landscape of, of your early career and where all this is going. Any, any predictions you need to make on my life that I need to know about? I mean, if you're going to be that accurate <laughs> on all that, I guess, I guess more importantly is, you know, where you want to go and you go there. <laughs> yeah, that's well. And, and, but, but then, uh, and, you know, and we'll get, and we'll get into this, the, the journey to, church history and the journey to the particular dissertation topic that I'm that I'm that I'm on was was much more was much more fraught because I had I had no idea I would end up in in either of those situations. Yeah. Well we'll get to that here in just a second, but um that was a pretty big jump. You went from uh to Maryland to uh to St. Louis for for your undergraduate. What what drew you out to the program there? Yeah, initially it was uh, it was it, it was really my dad was looking after after I took the uh, <laughs> after I took my standardized tests and got almost perfect on the SAT and ACT. My dad was like, Malcolm, we're not uh, we're not paying for college, uh, and so he looked for places that had good um, that had good merit scholarship programs, um, and so WashU WashU jumped to the top of his list that way, um, and then after I went to after I went to visit, I absolutely loved it. Um, and so, uh, that, that first year I met, I met, uh, I met my wife, um, and it was just, I mean, it was a great, it was a, it was a wonderful, wonderful four, four years, um, did, did a fair amount of theater during my time there. Um, yeah, it was, it was a great, it was a great time. Okay. Hold on, hold on. We're, we're going to go back to that. Uh, <laughs> any, any plays or musicals that you need to disclose that you, um, that you were in? Sure. Um, well, I mean, the, the, I mean, I, I acted all through, all through undergrad, the height of my, the height of my acting career though was, was, um, the, my, my two shows in junior and senior year of high school, which were, uh, Pirates of Penzance when I, when I played the Pirate King and then favorite role of all time was playing Gaston in Beauty and the Beast. Um, but in, but in undergrad, I was doing, uh, a lot of Shakespeare because Shakespeare, Shakespeare is my favorite. Um, but there's, but there were, there were a number of different, number of different shows over the, over the course of those years. Um, more, more straight plays than musicals, but did a few musicals too. I don't know, Malcolm, I, I kind of, I kind of feel like you're skirting the, uh, the specifics of, of, of the roles. And I feel like maybe you're, <laughs> are there any roles that you're trying not to disclose here on the CBF no, podcast? No, 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 no. Um, I, I, it, it would, it's, it's going to require me to, just, I just have to go back in my mind to remember, um, to, re, to remember all of them. So there's, uh, uh, Jake Quiz in, in As You Like It, um, Peter Quince in Midsummer Night's Dream, uh, Max in the, in the play Anatole, um, let me think, uh, Booker T. Washington in Ragtime, um, let's see. Yeah, I just I haven't had to I haven't I haven't rehashed my theater my theater career in a long time. So <laughs> well, it's good to know that although you're a historian, you're not constantly reliving the glory days of, of undergrad past. So. <laughs> well, let's get a little bit of your your work. Um, you know, as you said before, you had kind of distinct track in the sense of um, you know studying religion at Washington University, uh, a master's yeah. at Yale Divinity School with a focus on early and medieval church. Uh, and now yeah. you're working on a, a PhD in church history at, at Baylor. So yeah. 
you know, there's a lot of different applications of, of uh, the field of religious studies. Uh, you know, so why church history for you? Yeah, well, I mean, for me, I my intention was actually always to do historical theology. And when I applied to PhD programs, I only applied to theology departments. Um, and I applied to do work on, um, on Calvin and the early church fathers. And it was actually when I applied to Baylor, I interviewed with theology, but, um, but one of the church history professors, um, uh, David, David Whitford, uh, when he saw my application, he essentially thought, well, if theology doesn't take him, we'll, we, 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 we want him in, in church in, in the history of Christianity. And, uh, and so that's how, that's how I initially got into it. And then over the course of the years of the PhD, um, I've, I, I essentially found, um, I, I mean, I, did, I, I developed my craft as a, as a historian when I had spent you know, all of those years thinking, oh, I'm just gonna do theology, I'm gonna do historical theology. Um, and, and actually I have, I've found that this is, this is where, this is kind of where I was, where I was meant to be. Um, and so it started, so it started with just me wanting to do, um, history of particularly the, uh, the reform tradition and, and questions of Christology and those, those kinds of things. Um, but when I was in, I believe this was my first year, took a class on, um, American Christianity after the civil war. And, and during the time when, when we were discussing the fundamentalist modernist controversy, it, um, the, the question kept, kept nagging me of what the church was saying about the lynching of black people that was going on throughout, throughout the South. And, and the more I, and the more I read on it, the, 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 <laughs> I, I saw very, very little focused on that particular question. And so I started to ask the question, well, why, why is that the case? I found that there was, there was the assumption from some that, um, that, that, it was just a, that it was just a period of silence. I read that and immediately, just immediately didn't believe that. I don't think that it's, I don't think that it's possible to go, to, go, to go through that kind of level, to go through that kind of level of brutality and for there to just be nothing said. And when I, and when I, and when I kind of dug into the sources and stuff like that, I was like, wait a minute, there's, there's actually a fair amount here that, that, that hasn't been, that hasn't been brought to light. And so that's what, that's what then, um, uh, after, after going through that, uh, I talked to, I talked to, I talked to Dr. Uh, Doug Weaver about, about all of this and essentially came to the conclusion, I need to switch up. I need to, I need to switch up my research and focus on, on that question. Um, so that's how I got to where, uh, to where I am now doing the, doing the work that I'm doing now. Well, we're going to jump into a conversation here about your dissertation um, and your uh, your research. But um, you know, one thing you said, you know, if if you want to change it last minute here in, in the final throes of your writing is, I think you could write some sort of uh, Shakespearean play based around John Calvin's work and life. I don't think anything would be more interesting <laughs> than that. I, I had one church history and systematic theology professor that was obsessed with Calvin. And I think uh -huh. that bred within me just, uh, just in an errant, just distrust and disliking of John Calvin. <laughs> so I just, but as you were talking about, you know, Shakespearean theater, I was like, you know, could anything be more boring than a, than a Shakespearean play about John Calvin? <laughs> 
Hey, I mean, both of, you know, both of those interests came, came to a head when I was um, in, in junior, between my junior and senior year of college, um, I was doing Shakespeare at the Globe uh, in London. And we saw a performance of, of Dr. Faustus, uh, you know, the play when, when Faustus sells the soul of the devil and the entire, and the entire play is, uh, is this kind of struggle between this good and bad angel, the good, where the good angel is telling him, repent, repent, there's still time. And the bad angel is saying, nope, too late. We're going to drag you to hell when, when you're, when you, when you, when you die. So just live it up now. Um, and, and I essentially, after, after watching that play, because Christopher Marlowe, um, the writer of that play is a, is essentially a contemporary of Calvin's. I I, uh, I I I talked about the doctrine of predestination in two texts of that of that play, um, but that, that's actually what initially got me into got me into Calvin. Um, so that's its own that's its own story. <laughs> we just went so down Periscope for many people on church history that. <laughs> this CBF podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health. At the center, we help lay leaders, clergy, and congregations find ways to thrive in the midst of change. Our experience in highly trained consultants and coaches don't prescribe one-size-fits-all solutions. Instead, we work alongside you and take your unique congregation and ministry context seriously. We believe the wisdom for thriving comes from the leadership of the Spirit. We help create the spaces for congregations to hear and recognize that God-given wisdom. Please visit our website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about the center and find the help you need in order to thrive in ministry. All right, so let's let's get to the heart of of your work. Yeah, and such a timely conversation um, within our country, within our churches right now. So your doctoral work is quite fascinating. Um, the work is uh, lynching preachers, how black pastors resisted Jim Crow, and white pastors incite racial violence. Uh, it's an investigation to the African-American Christian response to lynching in the late 19th and early 20th century. And of all the subjects to write about and the church's vast history, what, what convicted you to write about this? Yeah. So, uh, so that article that I wrote for the conversation is a, is, is a little bit, is a little bit of what I do, but the prime, the, the, the primary question is, um, how how did Black Christians affirm their own affirm their own dignity and humanity in in a society that was essentially poised for their death? Um, and and it was I mean it was kind of fundamentally started with me seeing the assumption that um, that either uh, Black Christians either acquiesced or were silent um, in the face of lynching. And when I read when I when I read some historians making making those claims, as I as I said before, I just flat out didn't believe it um, because the struggle for civil rights has been a constant has been a constant struggle since the time of slavery. Um, and so I don't I I expect every single period of that of that history to have to have uh, significant pockets of resistance, and that's and that's um, it, and 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 I expect that even more during the lynching era, which is essentially the most violent and public instantiation of white supremacy in, in American history. And so the time period I'm, I'm thinking about is specifically between like 1890 and 1920, um, where at its height, uh, you have like a few, like a few black, black men, black men, women, and children 
who are killed by mobs weekly. Um, and, and, and the kind of, I mean, the grisly, the grisly brutality and, and, and constant nature of that, of that violence is something that it, it went, when I, when I came into contact with it, my, my, my question was, you know, where do you, where did people find hope? And so the dissertation is, it's essentially maps the different, the, di the different ways that pastors, that, that pastors and, and lay Christians uh, responded to that, ranging from, hey, pray about it, and, uh, and, and, and it'll end eventually, all the way to pastors telling their, telling their congregations, hey, we're probably going to need to arm ourselves in self-defense. Um, and then there are a whole bunch of, whole bunch of spots in, in between. You know, for a lot of white American Christians, the concept of, of lynching seems like something um, in the past. And yet, yeah. in, in California, investigators are taking a look at two cases ruled suicides in the last week that are now mm -hmm. believed to be possible lynchings of two young black men. And the mm -hmm. area uh, the men's bodies were found are known pocket group areas of white supremacists and neo-Nazis. Mm -hmm. so, so while it might be uncomfortable for some to hear this, I wonder if you will help us better understand um, the diabolical concept behind lynching. And, sure. and why uh, they became so prevalent in the American South during that period you discussed, the 1883 to 18, or 1941, in which nearly yeah. 4,500 people were, were lynched. Yeah. So after the Civil War, um, from 1865 to 1877, you have, you have the period of Reconstruction. Um, and during that time, uh, you have the creation of a number of kind of paramilitary white supremacist groups, including the Ku Klux Klan and others. And what those groups essentially signify is that you have a period of time where, um, where, where, where newly free black people are, are, are beginning to enjoy kind of the, kind of the rights of being, of, of, of being American citizens. And there's a, and there's a resentment that begins to build uh, in a number in a number of white communities, and so in 1877, when when Reconstruction ends, um, there's a there's a, there's there's then a period called uh, Redemption, when a number of particularly southern southern white folks begin to take power back in the South. And one of the ways in which they take power back is through the use of is through the use of racist violence, and so in in the late 1880s, up until up until the late eight, up until the late 1880s, you have uh, both white and and black people being being lynched by mobs. But in the late 1880s, you see the the the, the proportion of um, the proportion of black to white when you when you look at the at the at the lynching numbers, uh, the number the number of black people sky, skyrockets. The number of white people uh, begins to diminish sharply. Um, and it's also at that time that you see um, stories circulating in, in newspapers and stuff that, that, that black men rape white women. Um, and that's the reason why, that's the reason why lynching is happening. Uh, that's the reason why you have thousands of people gathering to burn a human being alive. Um, and, 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 and many hear that and think, well, you know, it's, 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 it's unconscionable to do, to do that to another human being, but, but that crime committed is also, is also, is also pretty bad. So, so we kind of, 
we kind of get it. That's the response from white and black communities. Um, but then um, Ida B. Wells in the early 1890s, when, when, when a few of her friends are lynched in Memphis, she's, 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 she starts asking some questions because she, she thinks, well, like, I know, I know my, like, I know, I know these guys didn't sexually assault anyone. What's going on here? And so she investigates and finds out that it was actually because of an economic dispute between they, these these men owned a owned a grocery store um, and 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 there was a white owned grocery store across the street um, and and when she investigated and found those other factors she started investigating other lynchings and found wait a minute uh, there people 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 have been lynched for all kinds of different reasons and often it's just because they've they've essentially trans transgressed the status quo of white supremacy. And so that 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 launches her into uh, you know into what I think is the is the most important anti-lynching campaign in American history. Um, but it's a period. But 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 lynching, kind of in a nutshell, was essentially a tool, um, a tool to maintain tool to maintain white supremacy, a, a, a tool of domestic terror um, that was meant to keep 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 black communities quote unquote in their in their place. Um, and there's and, and when we look at American history leading up until this point, there have been a number, a kind of a number of practices that have fulfilled that same purpose. Even though lynching as a practice of like publicly killing someone in front of crowds of thousands, while that doesn't happen, uh, while that doesn't happen anymore, um, those same the those 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 it. Th- those purposes are still fulfilled by um, by police violence, by um, by mass incarceration. By there, I mean there are there are there are a number of ways in which that that job is still done. Unfortunately, um, you know, as I was reading into uh, some of your work, one of the one of the quotes um, I pulled out was: "Some white pastors decried racial terror too." but others use the pulpit to instigate violence. And you even mm-hmm. cited an example of a pastor in Delaware gathering a, a crowd of thousands of people to sway the jury to lynch a black man that was on trial for, for rape and murder. So, yeah. so walk us through the complicity um, of the white church in this era of, of racism and violence. Specifically, sure. I, let, me, let me kind of uh, clarify what I mean. Um, yeah. I don't mean to say that there is not an era of racism and violence uh, today um, sure. propagated yeah, yeah. through the white church, but specifically, you know, kind of in this specific era that that you're writing and researching. Yeah, no, of course. So there's there's an um, there's 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 an insistence, and this is and this is actually a consistent it's a consistent thing um, is that uh, there's an there's an there's an insistence on not uh, on not listening to um, to their to their black brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, when you look at when you look at the way that, uh, and this is and this is particularly white white Southern churches. When you when you look at the way that they generally approached lynching, they focused on its law. They focused on its lawlessness rather than on its kind of diminishment of human life. And so and so the impression the impression that you then get is that hey the issue with this is that you know it's a um 
it's 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 an affront to order um as opposed to like human 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 lives are what's are are, are what's at stake um and so and, and so you have so you have churches that are uh that are that are deeply invested in 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 essentially the maintenance of white of white dominance um people see people see the church as a as a as a place where those where those things are affirmed and and um and so and so when there's the opportunity to talk about issues of issues of race and things like that in the church and things specifically of this period it just doesn't it just doesn't happen it's seen as either irrelevant or something else is you know or something else is going on um and so that's 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 primarily what i that's primarily what i see i actually actually consciously spend less time with that than i do with um than 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 i do with the response of black pastors because my my joke is that if i if i did spend like i mean if, if i if i spent all my time looking at the way that white churches um precipitated lynchings pushed them under the rug all those kinds of things then i would actually be depressed um because that's what that's what that's unfortunately what that what that story what that story is it's 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 a lynching happening in the in in the town that this church is and then the pastor getting up the following sunday and preaching that uh saloons are really bad and people should stop drinking um like that's the kind of that's the kind of um that's the that's that's what that's what complicity looks like in those in those contexts it was this this happening in your immediate vicinity and you and you and you essentially deliberately choosing not to not to talk about it yeah. you know beyond the the issue of race uh within the white church and its inability oftentimes to see racism um you know i think the kind of modern day equivalent is those that uh advocate for the rights of pro-life and i'm not saying i'm i'm for or against mm -hmm. any of that but it's it's pro-life to the extent of focusing specifically on abortion to the neglect of things like uh you know supporting the de defunding of proper medical insurance and care for people who are um, in need within the country or not really yeah. caring about um the products you buy and um, you know, where they come from and who is suffering as a result of you getting a cheap product. It's, it's that same similar mentality of, uh, let's, let's focus on this thing so that we really don't have to focus on this horrific thing that's happening within our community. So, so I wonder, yeah. um, do you see a different tone, but similar tendencies uh, among the white church today? And if so, can you help our listeners better understand that? I'm 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 encouraged by what I've seen in the last few weeks in the sense that um more people are realizing what what we black Christians have known for the entirety of um <laughs> of American history. More people are beginning to open their eyes to it. Um the uh I've I've kind of probably called the I mean the 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 lynch the lynching of George Floyd, the the lynching of 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 of, Bri of Brianna Taylor and the lynching of, of Maude Arbery, um, paired paired in the way that they have been in the last few weeks, have shocked and and on top of the fact that you know we're also in the middle of a global pandemic, um, all of that has coalesced into um, 
in kind of into a soup that then that that's that's driven a number of people to the streets um and 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 that's an and that's an encouraging thing to to see people are people are beginning to see the urgency the urgency of the issue um but uh there's also a sense in which um there ought to be there ought to be more more listening uh before you jump before you jump straight into before you jump straight into action there's this is this is this is like this is a this is a battle that people have been in for a long time and if people are just figuring out that this is that this is what's going on um there's there's more learning there's more learning to do before you before you claim to be before you claim to be an expert on it um and so those 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 tendencies of the late 19th and early 20th century are still they're still around but but i'm also but i'm also um you know, I'm in, I'm encouraged that that uh, that fewer people are willing to ignore it than 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 there were maybe a few a few months ago even. Um, so that's a that's a little bit that's a little bit of encouragement. But um, but we still have we still have a ways we still have a ways to go. One of the fascinating and unfortunate facts your investigation has highlighted is that the white community tended not to lynch the more affluent and publicly recognized black citizens of the community, but disproportionately targeted low status uh, black people, um, in, in yeah. your words, individuals a society would not protect. You know, Mahatma Gandhi is credited famously in saying the true measure of any society can be found in how it treats the most vulnerable members. Um, Give us the hard and honest truth about who is disproportionately targeted in our society today. And wonder if you would give us the tools to see this at work within our own communities. Yeah. Um, so, so it's important. This, this goes back to the, this goes back to the pro-life point. Um, the, a, a, a pro-life ethic extends beyond, beyond just being quote unquote pro-birth. Um, the idea is, I mean, Christ, Christ, Christ commands us to, I mean, to, to, to love the Lord, our God with all our hearts, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And, and, and when we consider who, who is our neighbor, um, as, as, as our, as our spheres of influence expand because of, because of technology and all these things. So also our view of our neighbor expands as well. And so, um, so when I think of who who I'm commanded to love, that is essentially every human being that I come into contact with. And when we look at um, kind of who is most, who is most at risk, um, I think of, I think of racial and ethnic minorities. I think of, um, I think of sexual minorities. I think of, um, I mean, I, I, I think of, I think of people whose, whose, whose lives are deemed, um, less valuable. And so as Christians, it's, it's, it's important for us to be, um, for us to be clear that, that we wish to, that we wish to support the lives of our neighbors, which is everyone. Um, and so, and so we can, you know, the, 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 the way that we engage in pastoral care in each of those situations may be different, but something that we ought to all be on the same page about is that, we want to support one another's lives. This is this is this is part of um, uh, 
so as a as 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 someone who's uh, reformed and, and Presbyterian, the Westminster Confession is close is 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 close to my heart. And when and when they talk about the the duties required of the sixth commandment, sixth commandment is thou shalt not murder. But it's not just a commandment not to murder. It's a, it, it's also it's also a commandment to to actively support the lives of our neighbors. Um, it's one of the it's one of the it's one of the commandments, and it's actually at the root uh, at the it it ought to be at the root of our Christian ethic. I think now more than ever. Um many white congregations are aware of the challenges that our black neighbors experience. And, and these yeah. churches want to act, but are not sure what and how to act. Yeah. So from a historical perspective, kind of taking us back to how, you know, within the black community and within um, white churches begin to help come around this, um, this vicious violence of, of racism, you know, what are some practical thoughts on what the white church should be doing right now? So one, one thing is, uh, uh practically is partner with, um, is partner with, uh, is partner with other churches. Um, this is a, a, you, we, we need to constantly be reminded of the fact that the body of Christ is not is not merely is not is not merely the local church. Uh, it is the local church, but it's but it's not but it's not merely that. Um, we we are a we are a global we are a global body, um, and the more we can the more we can kind of drill into our hearts that that's true, through things like regularly engaging with 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 um, with other with other churches, um, especially across cultural lines. Um, that's, that's something that's, that's something that's important. It's also important to be aware of, um, to be, to be aware of where we've been. And so this is, this, this goes back to the church history point. Um, it, it is, it is imperative for us to, if, if, if we're going to think of how to go forward, we have to know, we have to know our history because history reveals to us the, um, uh, boundaries and obstacles that have been that have been set up that we that we may not even be aware that we're working in the context of um and so for for many for many american uh for many american christian denominations those those histories are saturated are are deeply saturated with racism and if people don't know that uh there's no way for them to fight it um, and so, and so it begins with kind of a deep reckoning, a deep reckoning with our own past, um, a deep reckoning with, so, 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 so reading books, so reading, reading books like, uh, like Jamar Tisby's Color of Compromise, um, other texts about specifically, uh, race in the American church can, can help us understand kind of why, why we're in the situation that we're in now, um, and also can help us think of, Think of some ways forward, and then lastly, I mean, it, uh, this this comes down to kind of investing investing in our local um, investing in our local communities um, because that's where you're going to have. I mean, that's that's where you'll, that's where you'll have the most the most influence. Um, that's where you'll be kind of most able to wisely, um, you know, to wisely use the resources the resources that you have. Um, and when you think about political engagement, don't just think about kind of 
well, how is this going to affect me? Think of, okay, well, how, how is this going to affect, uh, how, how is this going to affect the, the poor? How will this affect the disenfranchised? How will this affect folks who don't, who don't have the same kinds of opportunities that, that I do? Um, when, when that kind of shift of mind takes place, um, then we can start seeing the kind of progress that I think we all want to see. What shocked you the most in your research? Hmm. Uh, one of the things that shocked me was um, how um, let me let me let me consider how I how I want to say this. Um, it shocked me that I would no longer be shocked by brutality after after spending after spending so much time with it um initially when i first read the stories of for example a a a, a woman um being put put into a barrel and and had like uh nails driven into the barrel and then had that barrel then had this woman killed by rolling that barrel down a down it down a hill when i first read that when i first read when i first read these horrific accounts of lynching um i was i i i was i mean just just nauseated and then i and then i kept seeing that and, and then i kept reading it over and over and over again and there's a and there's a trauma there's a there's a there's a there's a trauma in that um and i can only imagine the trauma of um particularly black communities during that period of hearing these stories trumpeted in, in newspapers and things like that. Um, but there reaches a point when, um, when you have to move, when you have to move beyond shock, because something that's also core to my, to my, to my theological commitments is that, um, when people have opportunities to do evil to one another, to affirm their own positions of power, or whatever. So what people do, that's what we do um it's probably what it's probably what the sinful nature is and so and so and so what what has constantly encouraged me is that even in the even in the face of of shocking and unthinkable violence um particularly black christians were insistent um were insistent that their that their hope is that their hope is real um shouldn't have it 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 shouldn't it shouldn't it it shouldn't shock me that 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 these that these saints persevered. Um, but but when you see when you see the circumstances and specifically the darkness of the circumstances, it's it's uh, it's 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 encouraging and perhaps a little bit shocking to know that to know that people that people made it through intact. So give us the other side of the of the coin, I guess, if you will. Um, what from your research gives you hope for the future? Yeah, I mean, so uh, it's it's the, the the history uh, the history of the Black Church continues to continues to be the source. I mean, I mean, I mean, you know, Christ is the actual source of source of my source of my hope. But but it's but but to see uh, specifically the history of the Black Church of a church where uh, that is, I think, uh, accurately kind of the the, pers the persecuted church in America. To see that it's to 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 see to see uh, to see black Christians resilience 
in the face of in the face of constant assault, uh, it, it 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 assures me of of what I what I know to be true that the that the gates of hell will never will never prevail against against Christ's church. Um, and it's my hope it's my hope going forward that 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 is a history that every Christian understands the importance of, um, and that it's a history that we also all seek to learn from. Um, and so it's, it, it, it's my hope that that, it, that that expands our canon of, 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 of theologians, our canon of historians, our canon of, um, of, of kind of Christians that we, that we look up to and whose stories we tell our children and those, and, the, and those kinds of things. I'm, I've been seeing a little bit more of that over the course of, like I said, the last few weeks, few months. Um, and that's what I hope to see. That's what I hope to see more of. So when is this dissertation being approved? When do you officially become uh, Dr. Malcolm Foley? When can we get our hands on your five years of hard yeah. work? Yeah, right. Um, so I'm hoping to I'm hoping to finish this thing up. I'm hoping to finish this thing up this summer. Um, my my <laughs> my first child is going to be born uh, at the end of next month. And so I have a I have a kind of I have a kind of hard deadline for, for yeah. all like major for all like the major heavy intellectual lifting. Um, so I'm trying to get that I'm trying to get all that trying to get all that done. But it'll but by the end of the by the end of the year I'll be a, I'll be a doctor I'll I'll be um, and and I'll be pitching the pitching the book to a, to to a few presses as well. So it's coming soon. Wow, boy or girl? Uh, girl. Awesome. Uh, dad of, of two girls, they're the best, but boys are the worst. Uh, <laughs> so that's, that's fantastic. Well, congratulations. Um, I'm knowing you, you, you know where it's going. So congratulations on wrapping up this, this dissertation at the end of the summer and on this uh, beautiful new chapter of, of you and your wife's lives uh, together. Well, if you want to stay connected with Malcolm, follow him on Twitter. Uh, Malcolm, thank you for giving us eyes to see the ghastly and challenging reality that we have not arrived. And thank you for calling us to live out God's indiscriminate grace and mercy. Glad to do it. Well, that's it. That's our conversation. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites at fuller.edu and healthychurch.org. Check out cbf.net for information about our church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, chaplains, and much more. Oh, and uh, one more thing. I don't think we've mentioned on the podcast before, but visit cbf.net backslash podcast support for ways that you can contribute to the CBF podcast conversations and get some pretty cool stuff. In.